Hello and welcome to On Air with Myrick O'Connell. I'm Howard Kaplan. This On Air podcast features attorneys from Myrick O'Connell, a full-service law firm with offices in Worcester, Westboro, and Boston. Our topic today is issues for employers to consider when reopening for business and reintegrating their employees to the worksite, and that likely will happen fairly soon. Our guest today is Myrick O'Connell partner Bob Kilroy. Bob is chair of the firm's Labor Employment and Employee Benefits Group, where he specializes in employment litigation in defensive corporations and their executives. Bob also has extensive experience representing hospitals and physician groups. Bob Kilroy, thanks so much for being with us today. Great. Well, thank you, Howard. I look forward to speaking with you. Thanks. This is a key topic, obviously, in the world today. Absolutely. All ears on this one. So the first question I would have is, if I were an employer and I have furloughed employees, am I required to recall them if and when Governor Baker reopens non-essential businesses and lifts the stay-at-home advisory? Sure. That's a question we've been receiving a great deal lately from our clients who are expecting and hoping, actually, to be able to reopen their businesses. And the simple answer is no. The governor's order reopening uh, non-essential businesses, lifting the stay-at-home advisory will have no effect on the operational business decisions that uh, a business, an employer, has made up to this point. Presumably, the furloughs were motivated by the need to save money uh, for financial considerations. If that has not changed, there's no need to uh, reverse that decision. Obviously, I think most employers who have furloughed employees are hopeful to return their staff to full employment, but it won't be based on any action by the governor. It will rather be dictated by the operational business needs. Sure, that that makes sense. And what steps uh, should I take, say I'm an employer, to ensure a safe workplace for my employees? That's one of those million-dollar questions that everyone's asking currently. And if you follow uh, listservs and websites and so on, you get inundated with guidance, although there's no definitive checklist out there uh, that really is a one-size-fits-all. What I'll start with is by saying that under OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Act, is what's known as the General Duty Clause, which requires all employers to maintain a safe workplace. So what does that mean in this environment, in the pandemic environment, and coming uh, off, in some respects, the pandemic bringing employees back to work? It really means taking reasonable, common-sense measures that you're hearing talked about in the news, reading about in the papers, And more importantly, you'll find listed or discussed within the Centers for Disease Control's guidances, OSHA's guidance, as well as Governor Baker's reopening advisory board guidance. So those are three particular resources I would encourage employers to take a look at. And those guidances, unfortunately, change daily, weekly, as we learn more about the virus and its effects in the workplace or to affects how long we'll stay on surfaces and things of that nature. So it's important to to go back to them. It's not just a one-time, take a quick look, but rather to stay on top of it. Now, some of the things that certainly I would recommend uh, that would fit across the board for employers, one would be enforcing the use of face masks in the workplace, particularly if you can't ensure social distancing. Now, That doesn't mean if you have a private office and folks aren't running in and out of your office constantly that you can't 
take the mask off, you certainly could. But when you get up from your desk, for instance, or you get up to walk across the manufacturing plant floor, you really should have the mask on because you're apt to come in contact with folks. You're apt to uh, violate the social distancing six-foot guideline. So one, enforce the use of masks. Two, enforce social distancing. So many employment businesses, companies, uh, workplaces have common areas. Uh, it might be a common cafeteria, a cafe, break areas, uh, conference rooms, things of that nature. You want to minimize the use of those, and certainly if folks are going to be able to use them to go in for coffee, for instance, you want to make sure it doesn't become a congregating point. Uh, just this week, I was speaking with one of my clients fairly large client who has an on-site cafeteria. They are taking the unique step of removing all seats within the cafeteria. They're not going to allow folks to go in there and sit down. Now, there's going to be prepackaged foods that people can get, individually wrapped, things of that nature, uh, but they're making sure that they're not going to create an incentive for people to hang out and congregate and violate social distancing. Another thing that employers are looking at and it depends on your operation and your business needs, but the possibility of staggering shifts so that you have fewer people in the workplace at any one time, and which facilitates greater social distancing, obviously. Next would be frequent cleaning and sanitizing, particularly high-touch areas, so doorknobs, door handles, countertops, uh, the coffee pot area, right, uh, the buttons on elevators, things of that nature. Anywhere where you're going to have high-touch areas, you want to make sure that there's increased cleaning of those surfaces. And one thing that we've seen that is proving very effective, and it, it gets employees in the mindset of ensuring that they're keeping themselves safe, is placing uh, hand sanitizers throughout the workplace. So as an example, if you have a common area with printers. People come and go picking up printed materials from those printers. You might have a hand sanitizer in that vicinity. You have a hand sanitizer over in the kitchen area. You have hand sanitizers, you know, spread out through various uh, locations within a plant or, or uh, individual desks and so on. That can be very effective and very helpful. And then last, I would say, is you definitely want to put in place protocols and policies that ensure that upon first sign or indication that someone's becoming sick, whether it be cough, shortness of breath, fever, you know, sweating profusely, those type of things, you want to make sure that you have a means to isolate them quickly and then get them out of the workplace, get them sent home so that they're not, uh, if in fact they have COVID-19, they're not going to spread it to others. And certainly any area that that person had been in or touched, you'd want to make sure that you sanitize. And, and although I said that was my last point, I will give one more. I think we'll talk about it in greater detail a little later on in this sure. interview. Sure. And that's uh, considering temperature checks. So some employers, and not all, and it's not required, but some employers will conduct temperature checks of their employees at the start of the workday. And obviously someone who has an elevated temperature would be sent home. So that is a great checklist of things that I, as an employer, for instance, would, would need to do. Now, if I require employees, we talked about face masks, if I require employees to wear face masks, what should I do as an employer if an employee just refuses to do so? Sure. Now, fortunately, I think that's going to be the rare occurrence. I think most uh, employees, most folks understand the need for face masks. Uh, what you may find is 
employees are willing to wear them, but they become lax over time. And therefore, you just need to ensure setting the example by uh, the higher ups in the business. Make sure that you're enforcing people to use the face mask by reminders. But really, most importantly, let's assume we have that rare individual who says, I'm not wearing a face mask. The first thing the employer needs to do is ascertain why. Because there may, in fact, be a medical reason that the employee cannot safely wear a face mask, that Mm. the face mask itself could pose a direct threat to the employee's own health. Mm. In the example of someone who maybe has severe COPD, something along those lines, they may be advised by their doctor that they can't wear a face mask. So what's an employer to do in that instance? They want to keep the workplace safe. I talked about the general duty of safety clause under OSHA, and here you have one of your employees saying, well, but I can't do that. Assuming that it's it's valid, it's driven by medical concerns, uh, assuming that wearing the face mask would pose a direct threat to that employee's own health, then you need to engage in the interactive process and determine, is there a reasonable accommodation we could offer this employee to nonetheless allow them to perform the essential functions of their job and allow them to continue to be paid, obviously. So what leaps to mind as the most effective often is, okay, you can't wear the face mask. We need to keep you safe. We need to keep our employee base safe. We don't want you in the work environment where that may be problematic. So can they telework? Can you have them work remotely? Mm. Assuming the answer to that is yes, then you would go ahead and offer that as a reasonable accommodation, and you'd be all set. Assume instead, though, that you can't. The the individual really has to be on site to do their job. You can't perform the essential functions remotely. In that instance, if there was no other accommodation that either the employee could offer or the employee's health care provider might offer to enable them to do the job on site, and, and one such option, I guess, would be they come in a separate entrance and they're immediately in a uh, isolated area. It's just themselves uh, working in that area. You, you could obviously do something like that. But let's assume that you don't have that ability. This is an employee who's supposed to work on the manufacturing plant floor. Then the accommodation might be an unpaid medical leave where they're allowed to be out of work. You, you keep their job secure for them uh, until we get through this pandemic and maybe we have vaccines in place. Uh, or they get cleared by the healthcare provider to come back, and it's thought that there's not a significant risk of exposure in the workplace. If that's not the situation, instead you just have that classic ornery employee who says, essentially, this is ridiculous that we're being uh, required to wear face masks. This violates my personal rights, and you know I'm not going to do it. I've never done it in the past. I don't plan to start now, and I think this is overblown. If you have an employee like that, it doesn't involve medical rationale, then simply issue them a directive. They're required to wear the face mask, and they uh, refuse at their peril. And by that, I mean if they refuse, then they're subject to discipline up to including termination of employment. I wouldn't be inclined to terminate them. Uh, at the first refusal, I'd probably issue a written warning. And if they then continue to violate, then I'd step it up and, uh, you know, you could go written warning, final written warning, suspension, termination. I, I would give them one shot. And if they continue to refuse, it's clear that's a decision they've made. And then I terminate their employment. 
That that makes sense, particularly during these difficult times. And uh, now, what if an employee refuses to have their temperature taken? Sure. So, if you're one of those employers who, as a uh, safeguard measure, is looking to take temperatures at the start of the workday, and the employee refuses, it's really the same analysis. Although I can't think of a basis why an employee would refuse on medical grounds to have their temperature taken, assuming that it's being done responsibly, meaning uh, no no-touch thermometer, right? Uh, those yeah. are available yeah. pretty readily. And you have someone trained to take the temperatures uh, and you're, you know, adhering to privacy rights for the individual, making sure that you're not announcing their temperature for others to hear, that type of thing, right? Uh, so if an individual says, no, you know, I'm not going to do that, what they're really saying is uh, I'm willing to put my fellow employees at risk. I'm not going to you know, allow you to take my temperature, well, to me, they forfeit their right to continue to work for you. And I would start by simply sending them home, unpaid, recall them the next day. If they continue, then ultimately they would lose their employment as well. Uh, You know, a couple things to think of for employers who are going down this path of taking temperatures beyond the no-touch thermometer is if you have a large employee base, you can imagine a line growing at the entrance. Assume that you have an eight o'clock start time mm. and here we are, seven fifty eight, and you've got the line, you know, seventy five people deep waiting to have the temperature taken. Granted, it only takes, you know, ten seconds maybe to take the temperature of an individual, but when you have seventy five in line, that takes a while. If you had someone who was there waiting an appreciable amount of time, more than five minutes, ten minutes. Uh, I would make sure that I count that time as time that they are getting paid. So if it's an hourly, hourly employee and they're in line for 15 minutes, even though they haven't really started their job yet, they should be paid for that wait time. I would also ensure that if you're taking down temperatures, you maintain that confidentially in a confidential log. You keep it locked up. Yeah, yeah. And if someone does test, uh, and the standard that CDC is putting out right now is 100.4 degrees. If someone tests at 100.4 or above, I would then move them to a confidential area, isolate them, t- tell them the results, and I'd send them home for the day and then follow guidance as to uh, making sure they're asymptomatic and or have a negative COVID-19 test before returning. I will say, because I think it's important in terms of this is very much an exception to the norm under employment law to be able to take temperatures of employees. So when this pandemic runs its course, which we hope is sooner rather than later, employers should not believe that they can continue to take the temperatures of their employees. That that would be a mistake. The EEOC has made an exception because it's a pandemic. Beyond that, it's a medical test. You wouldn't be allowed to do so. So I just wanted to follow up one thing, Bob. Uh, the limit on the sure. temperature is, was it 100.4? Yeah, 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit is what's uh, being recommended by the CDC as essentially worrisome mm-hmm. from a COVID-19 perspective. Now, if someone tested at 100.1, would I say, oh, well, we're good? You know, uh, no, I, I would be more conservative than that. I would send them home nonetheless. But uh, the standard that's being put out by the CDC is 100.4. Now, can I require employees, if I'm an employer, to undergo 
antibody testing before permitting my staff or employees to go back to work? Sure. This is a question getting a lot of attention currently, and for good reason. Employers have heard in the news about the promising nature of antibody testing. You know, everyone would love to know that they've been exposed and had no symptoms, and now they're immune from the disease going forward, and they think the magic bullet for that is the antibody testing that will say that they're okay, and and in that regard, they think they can go anywhere, not wear face masks, and so on. The simple answer, though, from an employment law perspective, at least today, now it could change over time, but at least at the moment, the answer is no. You cannot do antibody testing. And the reason, in part, is the FDA has made very clear that they do not find antibody testing to be sufficiently reliable as a predictor of full immunity, nor reliable to be able to say that you've had a past diagnosis of COVID-19. So given that, and given the FDA guidance, you would not want to do any antibody testing. If you did, you would be conducting a medical test that's not believed to meet the standards for business necessity and job relation under EEOC guidances. So certainly do not go down that path. Hmm. Now, if I've allowed employees to work remotely or telecommute, telework, am I required to continue to permit them to do this? Even though I'm reopening the business for on-site operations, I know so many folks are going to hang on every word you say to this one because I personally know of many who have really uh, preferred teleworking and would like to continue. Sure. I, I think that's going to be a, uh, a frequently asked question going forward for months probably. And let's face it, uh, many businesses have done very well by trying to sustain their operations by working remotely. You know, you're even hearing about businesses who are thinking they can reduce their physical footprint because they'll, they'll downsize and reduce their overhead costs for heating and cooling and rental space because they'll be able to allow workers to telecommute. But back to your question, am I required to permit them to continue to telework? In general, the answer, with a few exceptions that I'll talk about, but in general, the answer is no, absolutely not. Again, this is driven by your operational business needs, by your desires as the employer. And if you believe that you are better served by having them work on site, then you certainly can require them to return and work on site. Now, what's the exception? The main exception is where an individual is claiming that they have a disability of some sort that would require that they continue to telework. So this is really no different than pre-pandemic days where you would go through an interactive process dialogue, you would request medical information, that specifies the condition, why you need the accommodation, for how long you might need the accommodation. You know, if it's for a few weeks or a month, that's easy. If it's chronic and it's going to be for the rest of your life, you know, then you really have to start looking at can they do the job in full, all the essential functions of the job uh, remotely. So in general, the answer is no, you don't have to require it, but you want to go through the interactive process if, in fact, they're claiming a disability. And I'll throw out what I think are the four most common scenarios where I see this could arise for the individual who says, I would rather not telework. First is the individual who just has a general safety concern. They're not comfortable yet returned to the workplace. They've seen on the news you know, how many people have 
uh, unfortunately passed away from this terrible disease, and they don't want to expose themselves and or their families and run the risk that they acquire it. But for the grace of God, they're, they're the one in the ICU on a ventilator. So it's the, one is the general safety concern. Two is similar to that and, and uh, probably closely aligned is general fear of coming back to the workplace. The safety concern is more looking at is the employer doing what they need to do to maintain a safe workplace? The generalized fear is even if they're doing what they can and should do to maintain a safe workplace, all the things we talked about earlier in terms of social distancing, face masks, cleaning, hand sanitizers, and so on, they nonetheless have a fear of coming back. The third scenario is the individual who truly goes beyond your basic generalized fear that many people have to anxiety disorder. He's someone who's panic-stricken, who actually has a mental health condition that a doctor would diagnose saying that this is goes beyond your generalized sense of fear and becomes a true disorder, mental health anxiety disorder. And then the last scenario uh, where I see this arising, likely arising, is the elderly family member at home, right? So the employee is living with their mom who's 72 or their dad or, you know, an aunt and who, because they're over age 65, is considered more susceptible to the disease. And maybe they have an underlying health condition as well that would even complicate matters uh, further than just being older. So it's those four scenarios where I see this likely arising where employees in good faith are going to be asking for an accommodation to remain at home teleworking. And if it's helpful, I'll quickly step through those four in terms of how I see that playing out sure. and what your legal rights are. Sure, that would be great. So let's take the safety concern first. This is where it's not just basic fear, but it's the employee saying, I don't think the workplace is safe enough. I don't want to come back. In that instance, you really fall back on the OSHA general duty clause of safety. Does the employee have a good faith belief that the workplace is unsafe? And would a reasonable person believe there's a significant danger of injury or death if they were to come back to the workplace and such that it can't be mitigated before they could get, for instance, an OSHA inspection done? In most instances, the answer is going to be no to that. It's going to be more just someone has a a basic fear and you could require them to come back to work. I would advise employers to check with their legal counsel before they make a final decision, just to make sure they're not only doing what they should do to keep a safe workplace and keep it clean and sanitized, but they're documenting it appropriately. So if a claim ever comes, they're in good stead. Now let's take the person similar who's worried about safety, but who really it's just a fear issue. They know that the employer's done everything right, but they're afraid to come back. If it's your generalized fear, then the employer could certainly give the order for them to return to work And if they don't, they can be considered to have abandoned employment. If an employer was going to look to do that, they say, we need you back in the workplace, and the employee doesn't have a full-blown anxiety disorder, just says, yeah, I'd rather not, I'm worried, let me work from home. You want to make sure that the order given is in writing, indicates they would work the same hours, the same salary, and so on, uh, and give them a buy date by which they have to come back. Because by doing that, if they reject that, that gives you an ability, uh, if they file a claim for unemployment benefits, to say, look, we had work for them. They refused. 
that individual should not receive unemployment benefits. Now, let's up the ante a bit. It's the person with the anxiety disorder who can actually support that with medical documentation. That individual really needs an accommodation of some sort. They have a disability. The employer needs to engage in the interactive process, needs to look at the medical information. And likely, there are one of two options that would likely be available. One is, yes, we can let you telework, assuming they can do the essential functions of the job. If it's truly the case that they can't do the essential functions, they can do some, but not all. The employer could decide, we'll allow you to do some for a period of time, but it can't be indefinite, can't be forever. Or the employer could decide, you can't do the essential function of a job from home, therefore we're going to put you on unpaid leave. We're going to keep your job open for you, and once we get through this, we're going to bring you back. Now, if an employer wanted to be overly aggressive, they could consider, well, it's indefinite in time as to how long this is apt to run its course. What if, you know, there's predictions that say this could resurge in the fall, we could be going into 2021 with this. At that point, there's an argument that's become an indefinite leave of absence. You're not required to provide medical leave indefinitely. And an employer could take the more aggressive step and say, we're going to have to terminate your employment if you're not able to come back to work. My practical advice on that is I would not want to be that test case. I wouldn't want to be the person who ends up in the news as the poster child for the big bad employer when someone truly has an anxiety disorder. I think you're better off at least accommodating for a month, six weeks, look into it again, maybe it's another month. Eventually, you may have to pull the trigger, but I wouldn't do that right off the bat. Now, let's go to the last scenario, which was the elderly family member at home. And I think everyone can understand and empathize with this situation. You've got a, assume it's a 35-year-old man, He's the son of a 72-year-old mom who has some comorbidities. He helps provide care for her at home. She's living in his home. Maybe the home's not particularly huge for self-quarantining. And so he's saying, I'd rather not run the risk of exposing myself in the workplace to COVID-19 where the exposure risk is much greater than if I just stay at home, working from home and, you know, basically keep tabs on my mom and don't expose her to COVID-19. Sure. The analysis there from a legal perspective is really a what's known as an associational disability discrimination analysis. Because you, the employee, are associated with someone who may have a disability, an example would be someone who has COPD, right, or chronic lung disease or something like that. Should you be allowed to request an accommodation to work from home. And the case law is actually fairly clear on this, both federally and in state. You are not entitled to a reasonable accommodation for if you're associated with someone with a disability. Mm-hmm. Having said that, that doesn't prevent a plaintiff's lawyer from saying, well, it really wasn't that you terminated the individual based on their request for accommodation. You terminated them based on your concern that over time, the individual would be out of work more because they're going to be home more under FMLA, taking care of their elderly parent, things of that nature. And and that does get you much closer, at least from a fact dispute perspective, as to whether or not you took action based on them being associated with someone with a disability. So you would need to be careful there. And I'll go back to my practical advice on the third scenario. Look, this is not likely to last forever. Right. 
I would show some empathy. I would attempt to accommodate telework, if at all possible, for a period of time. And or I would give an unpaid leave of absence before I would take the aggressive step of terminating the employment relationship, even if you can and should prevail, which I think you should prevail, by the way, if there were a lawsuit. Uh, I think you're, you're far better off trying to work with the individual. In fact, the EEOC guidance on these points is they expect the employer to be creative and the employee to be creative in working with one another to try and find a solution that works for all. So that was a long answer, but a lot of material to cover there. In listening to it and processing it, Bob, I think for this particular tough time, I think reasonableness is the watchword among everybody. I agree. I think that's a, it's a great way to summarize it. So I think the wrap-up question is almost maybe the first question. How much, if any, notice must I provide if I'm an employer when I'm deciding to recall my employees? fairly straightforward. There is no legal requirement with respect to notice uh, in recalling someone. And we go back to the reasonableness that we just talked about. I would be reasonable in providing such notice as is necessary for the particular employee or employees involved. If I provide an announcement that we're going to be open for business starting on uh, May 21st, and I'd like to have everyone return to work, and one of or five of my employees say, can I have till the following Monday? It's going to take me a little time to arrange childcare between myself and my wife or my husband or what have you. In that instance, I think you'd be reasonable, and you allow the time necessary for them to get their affairs in order to be able to transition effectively back to the workplace. For a whole host of others, they're going to be able, you could tell them today, we're reopening, I want you at work tomorrow, and they have no problem. Uh, they might be eager to return, they'd be ready to return, and there's no reason to provide any more notice than immediate notice. So I would work with my employee base, unless, of course, it's someone who appears to be gaming the system or doesn't have a valid reason why they can't make it back into the workplace. Then my assessment of reasonableness would probably have an outer limit of two weeks. All right, I'll give you two weeks, but then you got to be back. We're talking uh, returning to work amid the COVID-19 pandemic, talking with Myrick O'Connell partner, Bob Kilroy. Bob, great information in terms of usefulness, clarity. Really appreciate your taking the time. I know you're really busy right now for obvious reasons. How can folks contact you if they have questions or concerns? I'll give you my direct office line. It's 508 860-1464. And even when I'm working remotely, that will ring through to my cell phone or my email. I'm on top of my email throughout the day. That's rkilroy, K-I-L-R-O-Y, at myrickoconnell.com. And Myrick O'Connell is M-I-R-I-C-K-O-C-O-N-N-E-L-L.com. And I would say, for those employers, clients who may have uh, worked with any number of our dozen or so attorneys and paralegals within the labor group, certainly feel free to contact them directly as well. Uh, they're well-versed in these topics also. And Howard, I want to thank you. This was uh, very enjoyable and wish you all the best. Stay healthy, stay safe. Look forward to seeing you. 
mutually felt. Thank you, Bob. And as I mentioned, today's guest has been attorney and partner Bob Kilroy. You can learn how Bob and his colleagues at Myrick O'Connell can assist you with your business and personal legal needs by visiting MyrickO'Connell.com. As Bob just mentioned, I'm Howard Kaplan. Thanks for joining us. Take care and stay safe. This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Myrick O'Connell. It is intended to inform you of developments in the law and to provide information of general interest. It is not intended to constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. This podcast may be considered advertising under the rules of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. (music) 